Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is Bill Press and Friends on the District Productive Network. Let's start with the big thing that's got Donald Trump so upset. And let's see if you're upset about it. And that is the big recount. Give us a call at 866-55-PRESS. All right, here's the question. Is this recount worth doing or not? Is it for real or not? I've been getting calls from all over the country uh, over this holiday weekend, once this news break. And it was Jill Stein, the Green Party candidate for president, who only got 1% of the vote, who launched this. And her feeling was that there were three states where it was really close, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, Three states, by the way, the Democrats should have won, but three states that could indeed make the difference. And we should not just let Donald Trump roll into the White House without kicking the tires and making sure that those vote counts are accurate. As she said on her website, this is why she decided that we had to look at this. As a grassroots campaign and a grassroots movement, we are standing up for a voting system that we deserve, that we can have confidence in, that has integrity and security, and that we know is not subject to tampering, malfeasance, hacking, and so on. Now, here's what's remarkable. Jill Stein put that out there. And in one day, she raised $5.4 million dollars. This is the Green Party candidate. $5.4 million in one day to pay for this recount because you've got to hire a lot of lawyers to uh, to make sure that's done right. And they started first in Wisconsin because there was a November 25 deadline in Wisconsin for a recount. So, again, uh, and may move into Pennsylvania and Michigan. That that decision hasn't hasn't been made yet. But let's look at the numbers, and you tell me whether you think this makes any sense. 866-55-PRESS. Remember, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by over 2 yeah, million. By, like, a lot. Right. By, like, a lot. And this has Donald Trump very upset. So Jill Stein starts this, and the Clinton campaign said, you know, uh, the counsel for the Clinton campaign uh, came uh, came out and said, we're going to join this effort because we want to make sure that it's done right and there are no questions about how it is managed, which I think makes a lot of sense. And that drove Donald Trump crazy. He put out 12, n- no less than 12 tweets yesterday accusing Hillary of stabbing him in the back, accusing Jill Stein of just doing this to get her own publicity, accusing her of pocketing the money for herself that she raised for the recount. He just went berserk yesterday. Uh, Clearly very upset about this. So again, what are the numbers? What are the facts? Okay, first of all, the facts. In these three states, Donald Trump leads 
as of now in all three states. His margin in Wisconsin is 22,177 votes. His margin in Pennsylvania is 70,638 votes. His margin in Michigan, only 10,704 votes for a total of about difference of about 177,000 votes. Out of 130 million cast, the margin that made the difference is these, these three states. About 107,000. Here's what Trump tweeted yesterday, kicked off this whole tweet storm. But the one that uh, people are really talking about is he says, in addition to winning the Electoral College in a landslide, yeah, I won the popular vote if you deduct the millions of people who voted illegally. And then he goes on and on and on. He talks right. about serious voter fraud in Virginia, New Hampshire, and California. Why isn't the media reporting on this? Right. Yeah. So that's Donald Trump's response, is that... Oh, I would have, first of all, he, he says the recount is it's wrong. They shouldn't be doing this. They should just accept. We should all just accept and move on. Number one. Number two, that he would even have won the popular vote if all those Ill- people had not voted illegally. Remember, he also, during the campaign, when he was calling it a rigged system, <laughs> he charged and alleged that there were people that President Obama had invited undocumented workers People come to come here illegally from south of the border just to vote in this election. No evidence for that. It's a total lie. It's total bogus. But that's his only response. I want to come back to the numbers. So if you look at the Electoral College, it is now, not a landslide, by the way, it's 290 for Trump. Here's how it ended up. 290 for Trump, 232 for Hillary Clinton, a difference of 58. Okay. Wisconsin has 10 electoral votes. Pennsylvania has 20. You take those two away from Donald Trump, he's not the president-elect. You add in Michigan with its 16, that would be 46 electoral votes. So uh, here's the question again. I want your answer. Is this recount worthwhile, and will it make any difference? I got to tell you, I think the answer is yes and no. Yes, it's worth doing because so much is at stake. And seriously, a margin of 10,000 votes in Michigan? I mean, first of all, that shows that, well, almost 11,000 Democrats who should have gone out to vote didn't. Shame on you. But that's so close. If a recount could turn Michigan and if a recount could turn Wisconsin, Hillary Clinton would be the next president of the United States. So I would say damn straight, absolutely yes, it is worth doing and good for Jill Stein for starting it. Uh, Is it going to make any difference? I got to tell you, I don't think so. I don't have my hopes up. Uh, I I just think it would be be tough to get that many votes that were miscounted or double-counted or for whatever reason would have to be disallowed. Uh, that that would be they'd have to go they'd have to go through every single one of them. Uh, good, do it, but uh, don't hold your breath. And meanwhile, don't believe a word Donald Trump says. But it just shows how thin-skinned he is, right? And how, as Hillary said over and over again, he doesn't have the temperament. He is unfit to be president of the United States. This is, I think, the the big issue, right? I, I don't think that he's correct. In his assumption that millions of people voted of illegally. Not. Of course he's not. 
But this, and, and, and but that's not the issue, right? The the issue is the temperament, the mindset, the just lashing out on Twitter for no good reason at all. Really, really quickly, uh, the Politifact people took a look, or excuse me, the Washington Post people took a look uh, at Donald Trump and his millions of people voted illegally line. Uh, Glenn Kessler from the Washington Post says, there is no evidence that millions of people voted illegally. Now that Trump is on the verge of becoming president, he needs to be more careful about making wild allegations with little basis in fact, especially if the claim emerged from a handful of tweets and conspiracy-minded websites. He will quickly find that such statements will undermine his authority on other matters. He doesn't care. And let me suggest that he does have more important things to worry about right now, like maybe getting his cabinet together. (laughs) Right. He doesn't have yet a secretary of defense. He doesn't have a secretary of state. In fact, his, uh, his publicly his his, uh, his team is publicly feuding over who should be the choice of secretary of state. He's got a long way to go. Yeah. Forget about the recount, Donald. Let's check in with Eliza Squiff, executive editor, cafe.com. Now, have you? We've been around this uh, a little while here, Elias. Have you ever seen uh, a situation like this where uh, opposing sides of a of a politician's team are out in public fighting over a nominee to be the next whatever cabinet member, but in this case, Secretary of State? I mean, Kelly and Conway, who is his was campaign manager, right, or whatever her title yeah. was. I mean, she's out there on all the shows yesterday uh, going after, I mean, by name, Mitt Romney by name, saying, he, you know, he doesn't deserve to be Secretary of State. So who's in, yeah. char- who's in charge here? Well, I'm sure you guys have heard this theory, so I'm curious to hear what you think. The theory is that, that Trump has no intention of selecting Romney, but he does like the idea of Romney being seen as wanting the job. And he likes the idea of his most hardened loyalists basically yeah. taking this freebie to take shots at Romney. Um, that seems a lot more like the Donald Trump I've come to know. And, I, can, uh, I can believe yeah. that. Absolutely. In other words, he's he's just teasing uh, Romney and, and making him suffer public, public humiliation. Yeah. yeah. He's like Lucy with the football, basically. I believe that um, 100%. I do, too. Yeah. Yeah. He is that petty. <laughs> but. But if the end of that game is Rudy Giuliani as Secretary of State, uh, save God, know, save right? the it's Republic. Like, it's not just Mitt Romney. It's sort of anybody with a, with sanity is is trying to kick that football in this yeah. situation. Unfortunately, um, yeah, I hope that that's not what happens, and I fear that that is what's going to happen because I unfortunately think that that's kind of going to be the vibe for at least the next two years. Uh, they think they have house money, and they're going to start playing around with it. And, and eventually they will have, literally, they'll have people's money probably soon enough. I think, the Kelly, I think the Kellyanne Conway comments are extremely telling when she talks about how the she, base and how, you know, your textbook Trump voter would feel about Mitt Romney. They yeah. would feel betrayed. Let me tell you. Yeah. She's not uh, out there without his permission. Right. I, yeah, I, totally. I'd be willing this to gives, bet that. This gives me a short opportunity to, to make a quick plug for a video that Cafe did that is Please. exactly yeah. on this point. Where uh, uh, last CPAC we went and we went around and we asked people there, you know, the CPAC is the conservative, right, you know, right. Woodstock or whatever. <laughs> and we asked them, you know, do you, this was before Trump had won, obviously. And we said, do you care what, what Mitt Romney thinks? 
And about 90% said no. Uh, and like 70% laughed at the question. So uh, I recommend people check that out to get a sense of why uh, the Trump administration is, feels so confident that they can kick Mitt Romney around without their base caring. By going to cafe.com, right? Yep. Okay. Big news in on the international scene and here in the United States also is the death of Fidel Castro on Friday at the age of 90. We want to find out uh, what that means for U.S. and Cuban relations. We shift down to Havana, uh, the, the Havana bureau chief for the Associated Press, Michael Weisenstein, joining us on our news line this morning. Hello, Michael. Good to have you with us. Hi, thank you. Good morning. Uh, the biggest surprise is, having been to Cuba twice myself, that we are able to get a phone line and connection with you. That sounds pretty good from Havana. Right, right. right. What, we've seen the celebration in Miami from the anti-Castro uh, crowd, um, Michael. What's the mood in Havana? Uh, Havana has gone quiet over the last two days. Um, music has stopped. Uh, by oh. government order, uh, restaurants are closing early. Really, uh, bars have mainly stopped serving alcohol, and people are are largely staying off the streets, which is fairly normal when there's a big public event in uh, in Cuba that that doesn't have people specifically called out. And that should change today when people start uh, the memor- the funeral commemorations for Fidel. Boy, it's hard to imagine Havana walking around Havana without hearing music from every direction. No, it's 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 really surreal. It's 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 amazing to walk through a, a virtually silent city. Now, is there a period of mourning that's been declared, and is there a state funeral planned? Uh, yes, it, it the mourning period lasts through Sunday, so it's uh, next Sunday. So it's mm. uh, we're we're two days into a nine day official mourning period, and today people began, or will begin in a couple of hours, filing through the Plaza of the Revolution to sign a uh, declaration of commitment to Castro's revolution. Uh, That will last two days, and then Fidel's ashes will be driven across the country for three days to Santiago de Cuba, where there will be another mass rally, and then his ashes will be buried in the cemetery in, in Santiago. Why Santiago? Is that where the revolution began? Is that the significance? Or? That is, that is where, the, where his revolution began, and it's also where Jose, Jose Martí, the mm-hmm. revolutionary hero, hero of the Cuban revolution against Spain, is buried. So it's a, it's a doubly significant place. Is there any word, will this be a, 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 a state funeral? I mean, is there any word, uh, some speculation about who from the United States might attend? or Will world leaders be assembling there? What's- oh, absolutely, yeah. Leftist, Latin American world leaders have already uh, begun announcing that they'll be here. There'll be celebrities. Uh, Diego Maradona is already on his way here. And... I would expect there would be someone from the U.S. who would attend, but as of right now, we don't know who that will be. Yeah, a lot of speculation about whether it might be unlikely President Obama, most likely not, but maybe Vice President or the Secretary, most, maybe most likely the Secretary of State. Well, uh, I'll be at the White House briefing today, uh, Michael, and I'll try to find out for you. <laughs> um, 
But so Fidel's been out of power for 10 years now. Will his passing really make that much difference in the day-to-day governing of Cuba? You know, if you'd asked two years ago, I would have said absolutely not. Fidel, interestingly enough, took on a more important role after the opening with Obama. He, after a period of silence, he he really started coming out against closer relations with the U.S., Mm -hmm. and while he didn't have a lot of day-to-day power, he became, again, very symbolically important as a a symbol to the the hardliners who really didn't want more opening uh, with Cuba. So if there is a a significant impact from his death on on the day-to-day in Cuba, I think it'll be a a sort of weight of support that, that the hardliners no longer have. Wow. So it might give his brother uh, a little more um, uh, flexibility or freedom to to move forward faster? Yeah. I mean, I I think Raul Castro has always had a lot of power, at least in the in after the first years of uh, of taking control from Fidel. Um, So it's not as if he was restricted on a on a day-to-day basis, literally by Fidel. But it lifts a little bit of of the weight of mm-hmm. history, I think, from right. Raul. Now, of course, the speculation rife in the United States is what's going to happen to this reopening of relations between uh, Cuba and the United States with the advent of a President uh, Donald Trump. Um, we're all speculating about it right now at this point. But what do your sources tell you? What what, what do you think is going to happen? No one here really knows. I, I, the, the Cubans don't know. Um, Americans who work in the embassy here don't know. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a decision that will be taken in, in Washington, and, and as you know, very few people in Washington even know what that yeah. will be. And the signals have been mixed, right? Um, yeah. As far as I can tell, yeah, the coverage that I'm reading from Washington, it's, it's I mean, they seem to be promising obviously some sort of change in the Obama policy, but who knows what that will be. It seems to be conditioned on changes from Cuba, and, and those conditions seem to change from day to day. So it's to me it seems unpredictable. Uh, is there concern among the Cuban officials you've talked to about, uh, about backsliding on some of the things that have been agreed to? You know, there's, there's certainly concern among Cuban officials. I think there's more concern about the Cuban people. Mm-hmm. The, the Cuban government was always, or at least the Cuban overall power structure, was always divided on the opening with Obama. Um, there are powerful groups in Cuba that like a state of hostility with the U.S. Um, yeah. But uh, the Cuban people almost unanimously uh, support the opening with the United States. I mean, there is, it's, it's impossible to find, or almost impossible to find, an, an ordinary Cuban who does not completely support the opening with the U.S. So there is, yeah, tremendous concern about among ordinary people here that the progress of the next two years will, will be reversed. Hey, everybody, this is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now, do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for The Bill Press Show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by 
telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Dave Jameson covers uh, labor issues for the Huffington Post, a good friend of the program, and joins us in studio. Hello, Dave. Hey, Bill. Good to be here. Good Thanksgiving break. Absolutely. All right. So, Dave, tell me, I mean, it it is true that all these advances that the unions were able to make under President Obama could be rolled back, right, under Trump. I mean, he's certainly no friend of organized labor. Yeah, I think that this could be like a pretty dark period for unions. They've been fighting a lot of fights over the years, right? Wisconsin, you've got all these right-to-work fights that have gone on in the states. So they've been running around putting out those fires. But in Washington, things haven't been too bad for them. Uh, you know, a lot of that was because they they had a Democrat in the White House. And so the the labor board that determines, you know, that plays referee in all these disputes, it, it's it's been, you know, democratically controlled. That's going to flip now. So they're going to start seeing those favorable rulings are going to start going the, the other national, way. National Labor Relations Board. Yeah, the board. National Labor Relations Board. Uh, you're going to have a Supreme Court uh, pick that, that comes along. And, and you, you know, they have the conservative groups have been gunning for the public sector unions in the courts. Uh, they got a really lucky break uh, with, with a major ruling last year in, in the Friedrichs case. Um and that they're going to make another run at that, the conservative groups, and and they're going they're going to win that at some point, and that's going to it's going to make basically the whole public sector right to work when that comes to pass. Um, so they're looking at at at, and that's to say nothing of all the smaller rules and things that the Obama administration. What was has the Friedrichs done. case? The that was the it? yeah that that was basically. Um, a case about uh, whether or not teachers, uh, in a, you know, have to pay fair share fees to their union right. in California. Um, you know, that one split with the court with Scalia gone. Um, that's not going to be split forever. And so, so yeah, things are are, are not, you know. And, and so the movement toward, let's take it on, like the movement toward minimum wage, 15 bucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trump yeah. believes there should be no minimum wage, right? Yeah, Trump, he's kind of all over the place on minimum wage. And I think he, you know, in his heart, he may be pretty moderate on this one. Um, but you got Republicans have, you know, have both both chambers. Uh, you know, the federal minimum wage is going nowhere for, for the time being. Right. Um, and right to work. Right to work. Uh, it, well, it could be. I mean, it's state by state now. We could have a national. We could right have to them, work. Yeah. There's no reason. No reason we we, we can't. Um, you know, Trump is voice support for for right to work. I think McConnell Congress, has always liked the idea. Yeah. Of national if they get it through right Congress, he would certainly sign it. Yeah. Yeah, I think he would. And and aside from that, collective bargaining. <clears throat> yeah, it's it's you know, in the right to work of the states, Democrats have so few state houses now. Uh, and so few governor mansions that that yeah, I think we're going to see more states uh, go go right to work. Uh, Missouri could could easily be next. Uh, so yeah, this is you know this is coming at a time unions are down in the in the public private sector they're down union density is less than seven percent. So this is not there's there was sort of this long term existential crisis going on. I think that could be be expedited even more now. Right, uh, labor secretary. Labor Secretary. He, that's one of one of many, by the way. He hasn't named yet. Yes. It's it's, it's amazing how few actually he's who've actually been. I yeah. would have thought we would have seen more by now. Yeah. yeah. I would have thought we'd seen more by now. Yeah. Uh, do we have any names for Labor Secretary? We've got a few bouncing around. Um, Lipnick, she's the uh, she's ahead of the EEOC, I believe, right now. Um, 
I think for a lot of a lot of you know people on the left in labor, I think they see that as a better choice than some of the possibilities. She's at least been a you know civil servant and um, you know is not something somebody that that is a household name that unions are terrified of, unlike a Scott Walker or something. Um, but you've got other names. Uh, Andy Puzder uh, is the the CEO of Hardee's and Carl's Jr. Uh, the the hamburger oh, chains. Oh, oh yeah. And this seems like the perfect Trump pick. The by the, the, way. the champion of um, anti minimum wage. Yeah. Well, and this guy he he was out. He's been an advisor to Trump. He was one of the few uh, people. He was a, a, an advisor on I believe on labor issues, and he he'd be out on on CNBC or or whatever uh, you know as a Trump surrogate during the campaign. And so of course he he's he's on a short list now. And but he's we've prob- seen Trump eat McDonald's. We've right. seen him eat KFC. Yeah, he loves the fat. I don't right. know if I've seen him eat Hardee's or Carl's Jr. yet. He's yeah, he's gonna have to start. Well, it's coming, I guess. Yeah. yeah. But this guy's uh, a, a billionaire too, right? I don't know how he's, much money he has, but yeah, I mean he's 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 in that club. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, you and, know, uh, which which by the way, it seems to be uh, a necessary ingredient to be considered for a Trump cabinet. Yeah, post. this is an insanely rich uh, cabinet that is taking taking yeah. shape. Well, we're draining oh, it, we're, we're draining the swamp, remember? Yes, yeah. yes. and filling it with billionaires. Yeah. But if you're the if you're like the fight for 15, right, which is all about shaking up the fast food industry, this is like an absolute nightmare. That that literally a fast food CEO. Uh, you know, could be setting setting the rules within the labor department, and then over on education, you've got Betsy DeVos, which uh, you know she, yeah. the, the DeVos family in Michigan, huge uh, uh, foe to unions there. They were really, um, you know, instrumental in bringing the right to work law to pass in Michigan, and now, you know, teacher unions see her as as the choice, and so it's really, I think that's that's a you know a sign for things to come, the, the DeVos pick, and and they're just there's going to be a war coming essentially. <laughs> A total war yeah. against the NEA and the AFT on the part of Betsy DeVos. And right. even setting that aside, you got the whole federal government worker issue going on where they're gearing up for a fight on that front, too. You know, Gingrich has really uh, had, had Trump's ear on this. You know, Newt has always just wanted to go after the federal employees unions, AFGE. Uh, NTEU, you know, just going after uh, the job security. You know, they want to be able to fire workers uh, more easily. Uh, they want a smaller workforce. And dark days are, are maybe coming for the federal workforce, too. You know, when we when, when Obama won in 2008 with maybe <laughs> one of the biggest mandates that a president has ever had, uh, nothing really moved on labor. Uh, and, and like I said, they had that mandate, but they didn't. They couldn't even bring card check up to a, a vote. And you will see what can happen when Republicans have as much power as they do right now. Uh, They're going to focus in like a laser they, on. They, they won't hold back. For no, sure. not at all. All right, now with Sabrina Sadiki, um, your story about. Uh, Trump and this Muslim registry. So one of the guys he met with was the Secretary of State from Kansas. Forget his name. Chris right. Kobach. Chris Kobach, who's been promoting this. Mm-hmm. Uh, does the meeting, his meeting with Donald Trump, indicate that Trump is going to go forward with this Muslim registry? And what would it mean? We don't know, but um, his campaign, Donald Trump, has said he never supported Muslim registry. He never campaigned on one, but he certainly 
said he would absolutely look into it and repeatedly did not rule it out when he was asked by reporters. I think, look, this is going to, if it does happen, resemble NSEERS, which was a program under the Bush administration, the National Entry Exit National Security System. It was a database that was based on country of origin. Having said that, out of the 25 countries, it was 24 Muslim-majority countries, where if you were coming in in a male over the age of 16, you had to register in person, and then individuals from those countries who were already in the United States had to go back and physically register in person. They were fingerprinted, they were interrogated, photographs were taken, and then they would have to go periodically check in. This already exists? This it did exist and then was shut down because despite them registering over 100,000 people, it was ineffective, did not bring about a single terrorist conviction, and instead just not only marginalized the Muslim American community at home, but also all these countries with which we work, right. um, and, and especially in a war on terror, need that those partnerships. So, look... You know, they, Trump has proposed a Muslim, a partial Muslim ban now, in addition, in addition to his original, or instead of his original full Muslim ban, where he said roughly 30 Muslim-majority countries would be on that list. Would he try and set up a new database for those countries? A lot of this is unclear, but the meeting with Kobach, he was photographed, you know, with with a potential plan to re, reinstate yes, right, this right. Um, program on, on, on the top of he his list. He was carrying it into the meeting. Yeah, and yeah. I think that some of his surrogates have already said, and Ryan's previous wouldn't rule it out and said it's not going to be based on religion. If there's something, it would be based on the country. But everyone knows from prior experience that not only has he campaigned Donald Trump with all of these proposals to crack down on, on Muslims, but also that, you know, in the past, the Bush administration claimed it was country of origin and everyone could tell it was majority Muslims in that database. So what about this movement that I've heard from several people who are saying, well, if Muslims have to register, we'll all register? <laughs> Well, I think that, you know, a lot Just of this, to overwhelm them, I think, that... I think part of that was, you know, a nice show of solidarity. Um, I think that also, you know, people weren't clear, is he trying to register Muslim Americans? Like, where is it really headed into, you know, World War Two era uh, tactics? Uh, but I, I, there hasn't, you don't want to necessarily fear mongering into that stage yet when to be, I will say to be fair, Donald Trump has never suggested just like, let's register all Muslims in America. He has not actually said that, um, reporter. But he, again, you know, he won't come out and explicitly rule anything out. That's what right, happens is he doesn't right, want right. to upset all these right-wing people who do like some of these yeah, proposals. Right. And so he never says no. And that's what gives credence to these proposals that he, again, has said, well, we're open to it. We're going to look into this. We're going to look into everything. Would it require uh, congressional approval? You could do this yourself because, you know, this is something that the Bush administration set up on its own. Um, it all fa falls under national security and, and uh, they, they could do it themselves, but there would be a legal challenge. I, I think I think FDR set up the Japanese mm -hmm. uh, internment camps, right? Right. Also and, by executive order, I believe. I don't think that was an act And of you Congress, would expect a legal challenge. The, the civil rights attorneys feel oh, confident oh. that their body of evidence against Donald Trump, it'd be very easy to prove that they are trying to uh, discriminate on the basis of religion, whereas with the Bush administration, it's harder to make the case. Whereas Donald Trump, again, because of the rhetoric on the campaign show alone, they could very easily in this environment, they feel, bring a legal challenge and say this is absolutely violating the Constitution by discriminating on the basis of religion. And this man has made clear he intends to do that. Right. So we won't really know until uh, after he takes the oath of right. office. Right. And I guess this would be under the Department of Homeland Security. Exactly. And that's and, uh, that's what Chris Kobach was auditioning for, DHS right. secretary. We don't Yikes. we don't know who the secretary of national the, the head of that department would be yet. I don't believe we, we don't know. We 
we're talking. We've been talking about November eighth, and things did not go away at the top of the ticket. But there were um, many initiatives in states, in the state after state, dealing with legalization of recreational marijuana. I think there was uh, maybe even a couple of medical marijuanas mm-hmm. on the ballot as well. Let's find out all about it from Eric Altieri, who is the new executive director of Normal, a great organization. I've been working with them for a long time. And joining us on our news line. Hello, Eric. Hi, Bill. How are you doing this morning? All right. Good to talk to you. So how many initiatives were there for uh, legalization of recreational marijuana? Uh, for the legalization of recreational, we had a total of five initiatives on the ballot, uh-huh. um, and, and we won four of those five. Um, the only state that we lost in was Arizona, and that was by a pretty close margin of about three percentage points. We had pretty strong victories in Nevada, California, as well as Massachusetts, and a razor-thin victory in Maine that is currently undergoing a recount effort by our opposition. Oh, well, um, you, if you need any help, we'll send Jamie up there, Jamie Benson from Maine, right? <laughs> Jamie Jamie votes in Maine. Yeah. I did. Hope you voted the right way. voted the right way on that Oh, come one. on. Oh, dude. All right. Hey, so... <laughs> as long as you remember to vote, Jamie, that's the most important part. That's right. Hey, Eric, so how many states, does that, does that a total of nine then... Now that that we're recreational marijuana and the district, or? well, that would add, um, you know, that would be, bring us up to eight total plus eight, the district. Eight plus the district. Okay, nine jurisdictions. Right. This is Sabrina. Um, good morning. Good morning. Uh, so we're headed toward a new administration where Donald Trump has nominated Jeff Sessions as an attorney general, who is expected to be confirmed fairly. Um, simply by Senate Republicans, certainly. And what does that mean? Uh, what you know? What does that mean as far as enforcement goes by the federal government? Obviously, the Obama administration, after a while, had stopped um, pursuing states that had legalized recreational marijuana. Um, so, what, does, do you know at all what what a Jeff Sessions, um, you know, at the head of Attorney General, at the head of as the Attorney General would look like, as well as just what a Trump administration would potentially believe in terms of its policy toward marijuana? Well, what's important uh, for the listeners to remember is uh, the ability for places like Oregon and Washington and Colorado to move forward on their legalization programs was almost solely by discretion and executive order uh, put forth by the Obama administration, which means there's no binding law that requires the incoming Trump administration to respect these state laws. Um, so that is where we are as it starts, very tenuous situation. So he can choose to go either way on this. Mm-hmm. And we're receiving very mixed messages uh, from the Trump administration as they're, as they're onboarding here. On the campaign trail, Donald Trump said numerous times it was a state's rights issue. He would allow states to move forward as they see fit. Um, and that was the one side. The other side is bringing in someone like uh, Senator Sessions to the attorney general. Uh, Sessions has been a militant prohibitionist his whole life. Uh, he has some, you know, rather famous quotes on this, saying good people can't smoke marijuana, um, you know, that I liked the KKK until I found out they smoked marijuana. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, he's definitely to the far right on this issue, and if he were to be allowed to, you know, govern his agencies based on his own personal preference, um, we're in for a really rough four years. Where, on the other hand, if Donald Trump sticks to his campaign promise and dictates his policy to Sessions, uh, we could see uh, another four years of a similar hands-off approach that we did under Obama. Yeah, and we just don't know. But you, you expect the worst from a, from from a Jeff, Jeff Sessions. Sessions. 
Yeah, yeah. You certainly have to expect and prepare for the worst. Um, you know, we've fought so hard for all these victories. Um, we certainly aren't going to just let them see overturned now. And what we would hope that um, Donald Trump and his administration would recognize is that 60% of Americans support the legalization of marijuana. Uh, an even higher percentage, uh, closer to 80, do believe this is an issue best left to the states. Uh, so this would not only be bad policy if they attempted to go intervene, it would be very bad politics and start them off on a horrible foot uh, with the American people and put them way out of touch with popular opinion. The Parting Shot with Bill Press. This is The Bill Press Show. Well, I know you thought he'd never die, but Fidel Castro finally did at the age of 90, despite several attempts by the CIA to assassinate him. Castro was both a huge success leading the Cuban Revolution, but a dismal failure running the Cuban government, causing nothing but hardship for the Cuban people. But a lot of that hardship was caused by us, too, with this ridiculous embargo that we had in place against Cuba for over 50 years. Now the big question is... That when relations between the United States and Cuba, thanks to President Obama, are starting to normalize, will the Trump administration continue down that same path? It would be a big mistake and great damage to the Cuban people to reverse course. That's my parting shot for today, folks. Have a good one. Come back and see us tomorrow. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.